0: Welcome to Bankless, where we explore the frontier of internet money and internet finance. This is how to get started, how to get better, and how to front run the opportunity. I'm Ryan Sean Adams. I'm here with David Hoffman, and we're here to help you become more bankless. David, great episode today. Tarun Chitra on the podcast. He is a polymath. He's got, <laughs> he, he spans so many different ideas, such a big brain. But this episode, we really drew his attention to the history of of the markets, in particular, the history of the electronic markets. What did we cover today?
1: Yeah, really, the, the concept or story being told here is that the internet, as we all know, changed everything, and it especially changed how markets are structured. And so as soon as the internet started to invade the world of financial markets, an interesting story is told. Uh, and so Tarun has delineated these uh, the growth and uh, this story into three phases phase one, two, and three of the growth of electronic markets where we stopped yelling at each other inside of the pits about what trades we wanted to make. And instead we just started typing our trades into computers. Um, and that has gone from people order routing into various exchanges in the eighties uh, and nineties to uh, consolidation to brokerages like your, your Charles Schwab and your E-Trades online on, in the nineties and early thousands uh, to where we are today with DeFi markets and crypto exchanges. In each one of these phases, has similar story or similar uh, themes throughout each one. There's themes of what happens when a financial crisis crisis happens because we're talking about market infrastructure. The way that the market infrastructure is built impacts the nature of the financial crisis. We have the stories of how regulators came in to each phase and impacted the story of the development of each phase. And the way that um, the communication and computational abilities of the infrastructure or the hardware of the world impacted the, Accessibility and centralization or decentralization of the markets, uh, and so this is uh, these, these themes are reoccurring throughout history. This is a definitely definitely a podcast about you know history doesn't repeat, but it definitely does rhyme, and there are lessons to be learned about electronic markets that we are trying to apply to DeFi, so that when these events unfold in DeFi, which Tarun thinks that they definitely will, we will be prepared for them.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the three lines of this episode is just um, in every phase of the electronic markets you know, eras, there was increased access for individuals, right? And I guess this is the story of markets from from the very beginning, the first you know, joint stock yeah. companies and the first uh, you know, stock markets. Um, and that, that was kind of reserved for sort of the, the elites and um, the, like the uber wealthy and, and kind of like, uh, you know, mercantile class and that sort of thing. Just that the markets are opening up more and more over time. And it's very interesting to see like DeFi as the third phase of this, where you've got all of that, but at warp speed. Like anybody, anywhere with an internet connection can open a marketplace, can create an asset, can even if they have the skills, create a new financial product. And that's something like we've never seen before. I mean, I know there are corollaries to, to what this looked like, Turin says, in, in the 1980s with, with the first era. Mm-hmm. But I also feel like this is uncharted water, uncharted territory. Right. Yet, it feels it fits this trajectory of markets are becoming more and more open. Mm-hmm. And um, like everything is, is kind of becoming, uh, like I guess, I don't know if I'd call it hyper-capitalism because it has some negative connotations, but sure. hyper-marketization, I don't know if that's the word, but that's kind of what we're seeing here. And it's a good thing because it means more financial inclusion for, for the world and more capital coordination.
1: Absolutely. We often talk about how crypto and DeFi is the Wild West. Well, you can imagine what the world is like before the internet when trades are being made by people yelling at each other on pit floors and doing hand signals to make their <laughs> trades. That reminds me of the movie from Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Um and, but uh, all of a sudden the internet comes and instead of you know, yelling at each other and doing hand signals, we're inputting uh, you know, our trades into a computer and the structure of the entire market absolutely changed. That was the absolute Wild West back then too. This is not the first time financial markets have gone through their Wild West moments. Like the first Wild West moment happened in the eighties. Uh, Tarun tells a story about this one guy that had like 10% of all trading volume going through his server in his garage. And it was just some random dude. And there's a lot of interesting correlates between what we see now in crypto where, you know, just one rogue developer builds this brand new financial product and all of a sudden, like, half the world is using it or whatever. Half of DeFi is using it. Similar stories, similar themes. Uh, you know, history definitely rhymes.
0: Uh, and I love where this ends, where we, we go through um, the lens and, and we sort of apply the lessons learned from previous eras to the current era to try to map out what the future looks like because, right. look, man, the the future of crypto and DeFi is uh, is so uncertain in terms of like we know long term this is going to be successful because this is unstoppable, but um, what might we see in the interim in the in the in the short to medium run and uh, this gives us a framework for starting to project this. I especially liked Turin's description of risk that we might see in DeFi both. you know the plus side of this where we have an open financial system so we can maybe see these risks more easily before they emerge Um, but also how risk has been kind of not the downfall but um, an issue with every single electronic uh, era previous so exciting episode make sure you guys tune in to the end of this episode before we begin we want to thank the sponsors that made this possible living a bankless life requires taking control of your own private keys not your keys not your crypto
1: that's why so many in the bankless nation already have their ledger hardware wallets which makes proper private key management a breeze but the ledger ecosystem is more than just a secure hardware wallet ledger is the combination of the ledger hardware wallet and the ledger live app and if you're used to seeing all of your crypto services and favorite d apps all in one place ledger is where you want to be Not only does Ledger let you buy crypto assets straight from the app, but it also hooks into decentralized exchange aggregators like Paraswap, which makes sure that you are getting the best prices on your trades without your assets ever leaving your control. DeFi never stops growing and the Ledger Live app grows alongside with it. So click the link in the show notes to see all the DeFi apps that Ledger Live has and stay tuned as more and more apps come online. And if you don't have a Ledger hardware wallet, what are you even waiting for? Go to ledger.com, grab your Ledger, download Ledger Live, and get all of your DApps all in one place. Arbitrum is an Ethereum scaling solution that is going to completely change how we use DeFi. If you've been using Ethereum for the past 12 months, you've probably noticed the high gas fees and the slow confirmation times that have been plaguing DeFi. Too many people want to use Ethereum, and it doesn't have enough capacity for all of us. That's where Arbitrum comes in. Arbitrum is a layer 2 to Ethereum, which means Arbitrum can increase Ethereum's throughput by orders of magnitude at a fraction of the cost of what we are used to paying. When interacting with Arbitrum, you can get the performance of a centralized exchange while tapping into Ethereum's level of security and decentralization. This is why people are calling this Ethereum's broadband moment, where we get to add performance onto decentralization and security. If you're a developer and you want to save on gas costs and make an overall better experience for your users, go to developer.offchainlabs.com to get started building on Arbitrum. If you're a user, keep an eye out for your favorite DeFi apps building on Arbitrum. Arbitrum has been working with over 300 teams, including Ethereum's top infrastructure projects, and will be opening up to all users shortly. There are so many apps coming online to Arbitrum, so you may want to pack your bags in preparation for the great migration to the Arbitrum layer two. To keep up to speed with Arbitrum, follow them on Twitter at Arbitrum and join their Discord.
0: All right, Bankless Nation, we are super excited about our next guest. We have uh, Tarun Chitra. He comes from one of the most rich and complex corners of Ethereum. He is a big brain. I don't know, can't even keep track of all the things Tarun is doing. He's the co-founder of Gauntlet that provides economic simulation to DeFi protocols to help them harden their economics. super important stuff. He's also a co-founder of Robot Ventures, where he invests alongside Robert Leschner, who's been on the podcast several times in DeFi. He's also a frequent guest of the Zero Knowledge podcast, so you will appreciate his audio. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's also a leading thinker on MEV, that is Maximum Extractable Value, and so many other topics. Today, we're going to talk about his concept for electronic markets and the third era of electronic markets that we find ourselves in today. Tarun, how's it going, man? How are you doing? Great. How are you? Thanks for having me on. Oh, uh, we are doing great. You know what, man? I love that background. You gotta you gotta tell us. Is this like an NFT or like what is this background? <laughs> it's super colorful. Your glasses seem to kind of match the the ambiance of it. What's uh what's the story here?
2: So I love um kind of weird niche math things that have very pretty pictures. And so this thing behind me is something called a uh, Penrose Tiling. Um, oh, and... I know this one. Get David Great. to explain well, it then. If David yeah, wait, knows if, it, if, explain if, it, David. If, if,
1: I'm, if I'm right, then I could be wrong. But this is uh, Penrose Tiling uh, is like the basis of a pattern, if you color it right, the coloring I think is very uh, important and I could be wrong, um, but like the, it's a pattern that never ever repeats. And so it's an infinitely recursive pattern and you will never find the same tiling pattern ever again as the, and, and it's a, an infinitely recursive pattern. So it can go into infinity but you will never find the same pattern twice. Is that right?
2: Yeah, basically. Yeah. Basically wow. it's 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 sort of uh, job, yeah, baby. infinite tiling with no no repeated There's a certain weird way in which the no repeated units right. is defined, but people make very pretty pictures like this one of them. So
0: that is super cool. That's gonna be uh, that's gonna be great. This entire podcast. We've been <laughs> enjoying looking at that. Um, but let's get to the topic, because today we are here to explore the topic of electronic markets. I think Tarun, You have this idea that um, there have been three eras, three stages of electronic markets, the first, the second, and now we are entering the third. And when David and I heard about this, this concept you had and this mental model you had, we knew we absolutely had to unpack it here on Bankless because uh, I think it's an important mental model for us all to understand. So uh, let's start with some definitions and scope here. When we're looking at electronic markets from a a satellite view, what do you mean uh, by the term electronic markets and what does that mean more generally?
2: Yeah, for sure. Um, I think... You know, if we if we kind of take a step back prior to electronic markets, what what were markets? They were, you know, you you think it kind of from history class, like, hey, it's like in the center of a city, there is like a bazaar, and there's like a bunch of people who have stalls, and and that's like the the earliest form of market. But every new form of technology uh, that has been invented inevitably finds its first usage and adoption in in financial markets. So. You know, when when people uh, sort of had the telegraph, the telegraph became sort of this B2B business to business device that was used for different businesses in, in different towns to kind of like send messages about the weather or whether like a shipment would make it or sort of commercial details. And, and that was sort of the original sort of starting point of, of the telegraph. Uh, but then as kind of time evolved and everyone got electricity, uh, you know, we, we, we had telephones and then the masses started using effectively the same communication technology. And that led to a lot of uh, sort of new markets uh, in the sense that people could buy things over the phone, people could uh, find new customers uh, via telemarketing, which of course now is viewed as antiquated and annoying. But I think at the time, uh you know sort of post world war one was, was sort of like the heyday of like going into kind of the the golden 20s that there, there was actually kind of viewed as probably the way we view like instagram ads today as like much more in culture kind of in vogue type of advertising versus uh those ads and so but these were all very uh, markets that were very peer-to-peer and i i mean peer-to-peer more in the bad way like you, you, know, you have to do a lot of work to find a buyer or a seller um, when, you're one of, when you're the opposite. You have to go manually kind of like figure out how to put the dots together. There's not like a central place or a central kind of source of funds and trading. Um, but what happened once we had the internet was sort of in the, the very earliest parts of the internet. So internet created sort of by defense agencies in the 70s. But in the early '80s, people in uh, finance realized the internet was a really good way to price assets. That you know, that sort of disintermediated, um, you know, large entities who who uh, kind of controlled most trading. So if you think about stocks in the 1970s and '80s, um, only institutions could really buy them like you could buy a mutual fund who could buy shares and stocks but you yourself couldn't really realistically do that and you would have to go through an intermediary like a bank now what people
0: really how would you even do that in the in the 1970s 80s like most listeners are kind of detached from that so you have to like schedule an appointment with a banker to go like with a broker okay yeah to go buy your mutual fund
2: yeah, to go buy shares in the mutual fund and the mutual fund would go invest in in, in, in stocks for you um I, I don't know if you've ever like I feel like I've always seen this in sort of smaller towns in, in the US but there are like these like physical broker branches like there's a Charles Schwab that actually exists these. as a you know
0: I've never walked into yeah. them I don't know what
2: they do there <laughs> it, it's certainly China made shoes. for like yeah it's definitely made for a more geriatric audience I think oh, yes. uh, in a lot of ways uh, but But that's the vestige of that time where, like, in order to buy stocks, you would, like, go to a physical venue. You would pay someone, like, 5% to execute the the trade uh, if you're lucky. Uh, And then it would go through a series of middlemen, and then it would go to banks. And banks were the only ones who kind of dealt with the stock exchange uh, for you. So there was this, like, huge chain of intermediaries. What happens once
0: people... This was a time where we had markets, but we didn't have the electronic part of it. Right, it was just markets, yes, full of intermediaries, not very peer-to-peer yes. from an electronic perspective.
2: Yes, exactly, exactly. Like the 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 phrase "electronic markets," I think, really refers to the idea of replacing a lot of the middlemen with compute and communication um, via the internet, and also via like being able to use a lot of compute power. And people in the '80s realized that you you know you could actually do that quite efficiently and get rid, uh, rid of a lot of um, middlemen um, in, in banking. Uh, and that sort of started this trend that obviously went to today where you have Robinhood and you can go buy stocks on your own. Uh, you don't pay anything, you know, you can do your own research, stuff like that. You know, I think we ha- the earliest part of the electronic market revolution was getting rid of intermediaries and brick and mortar entities. Automating a lot of the execution and settlement and storage um, of stocks. So, you know, stocks for even though you, you you might not know that you still could request this, there is actually a physical certificate sitting uh, at Bank of New York Mellon <laughs> that represents like the share that you bought. But you know, you're trading when you're trading on Robinhood or or Interactive Brokers or, or Charles Schwab, there, everyone is holding IOUs for those shares. And you're really only trading the IOUs. No one's actually physically usually moving the stock. The 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 brokers kind of net settle every day of like, hey, I bought for all my customers 500 shares of Apple and I sold 600 shares of GameStop. Uh, so, you know, the two counterparts execute that trade, but sorry, we're getting a little of, away from the el- definition of electronic markets, but I think the definition is, uh, any sort of form of uh, marketplace interaction where you can aggregate buyers and sellers and they can transact autonomously without needing um, whitelisted trusted parties.
1: So just to, to ground the listener, Tarun is is uh, more, much more of an expert than us on the, the history and progression of electronic markets. And so we definitely want to pick his brain about how these things came to be. Like, how did we go from know, the telegraph and and the telephone into where we are today, which is, you know, trading on Robinhood. And, you know, while the listener of this podcast and the Bankless Nation are beyond trading on Robinhood, they are, you know, trading on DeFi and using DeFi apps. Uh, DeFi is really just the next logical continuation of the emergence of electronic markets. And so uh, I think it's really important to understand the history of these things uh, as a concept uh, and, then, and then we can talk about how DeFi is a continuation of electronic markets with new things, with uh, the old things, uh, and a, a couple of, you know, weird kinks here and there as well. Um, but Tarun, help, help, the, help ground the listener. What would you say are the common themes and through lines and um, just like reoccurring elements of each wave of uh, each, you know, emerging ele- electronic market? What, what are we going to continually revisit over and over and over again in this conversation?
2: Yeah, for sure. I think uh, the number one thing is there's always a boom and bust cycle hidden somewhere um, in each of these waves. Um, another thing that happens in each wave is that there is a new technology or and or regulation introduced that causes sort of a seismic shift uh, in terms of um, market microstructure and, and how people interact with these systems. Um, and then the third uh, thing is I think like there's a, a kind of gradual disintermediation of, uh, third parties at each step. Um, and, uh, I guess the final thing is that each new wave of technology makes the market more competitive, which lowers prices usually for in aggregate for people.
0: Okay. So we're going to see these themes, I guess, reflected in each of these, uh, each of these eras, but you have a kind of a a framework of eras that we want to go through and maybe high level, I'll kind of say what they are and we can maybe start with the first one. Um, but the first is like electronic markets 1.0. And that was really the genesis of electronic markets. We had these analog markets and now we're making them electronic. That started in the 1980s, and I think lasted into the 90s. Uh, then we had electronic markets 2.0, which started in sort of the, the 2000s. I kind of think of this as like the, the E-Trade era at the, at the start of it. And that lasts into the present era now. Um, maybe maybe Robinhood is kind of a, a you know transitory um, thing into p- partially one foot in era two and one foot in era three. That started in the 2000s and uh, up to this point. And then we have Electronic Markets 3.0, which is kind of the the crypto and Wall Street bets type era. Maybe that tar- started in um, 2015, 2016 or so and it overlaps with era two. So these are the three eras that we're gonna talk about. So take us to the first, Tarun. Let's talk about this electronic markets era uh, 1.0, the genesis of electronic markets. Take us all the way back to the early 1980s. Um, What was the technology that really enabled this? And um, like, uh, where did it start and where where did electronic markets start arriving on the scene? And um, take us through the timeline.
2: Yeah, so um, I know many people have probably seen in movies like these pictures of these guys at like the stock exchange or the commodities trading exchange, like raising their hands and like doing all sorts of types of hand signals to say like, hey, I want to buy like 500 cows or I want to sell, you know, 500 shares of Disney. That was what was happening in the 70s. So there was, you know, the New York Stock Exchange, the physical location was filled with people. From banks and sort of brokerage and trading firms and they were the only ones who were officially allowed to trade stock um and what happened in the 80s is you know actually sort of in this 1970s something that we don't really see right now right now when you think of stock exchanges um, as as just an individual you think of the New York Stock Exchange, you think of NASDAQ, you think of maybe the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, maybe the London Stock Exchange, maybe the Tokyo Stock Exchange. You know, like, There's always like one or a few in each country, but you don't think of like many. But in the 1970s, every city in the US had their own stock exchange. So there was much more regionalized uh, stock trading. So you might be at the Philadelphia Stock Exchange and Comcast would be listed there instead of in New York. So that there wasn't
0: bizarre. Why why is that? Is that just because like every all the companies in that region would sort of aggregate to their local city stock exchange?
2: Yeah. So the idea is that like, you know, maybe people in Philadelphia, the companies that are IPOing there, are a little smaller than the ones in New York, but the buyers mm-hmm. and sellers had to meet physically to actually buy the stock. So the oh, buyers in Philadelphia okay. tended to have less either less money and the sellers have less lower valuations to sell. So they just met geographically in the kind of like the, the, their local, they represented their community as finance. Right.
1: Uh, yeah, this was like pre-globalization, right? Like, it's just like, Hey, like yeah, I'm going to invest in the company down the street from me rather than exactly. I'm going to you know, like send my order to New York.
2: Yes, exactly. Exactly. And so, uh what happened, there was a little bit of, of uh, consolidation, but the consolidation wasn't in due to technology. The consolidation was just like the New York Stock Exchange bought the Philadelphia Stock Exchange. And so mm-hmm. they're the same brand, but they they and they would net settle for you. So if I lived in Philadelphia, I wanted to buy a stock in New York, I'd go to the Philadelphia Stock Exchange, and then they would relay it, and there'd be fees on relaying. So the problem with that is that's extremely expensive because... Yeah. A, I'm paying locally for the relayer, and then B, I have to pay on the other end like when the trade actually gets executed. So what happened when the internet came out was people realized they could get rid of this relaying system and this kind of net settlement a few days later. So like if I was in Philadelphia and I was buying stock in Chicago, uh, I wouldn't even be guaranteed my execution would happen within a day. It might take like two to three days. They might not be able to actually fulfill it. They might not find sellers. It was very inefficient and like very, it was almost like going to the mall and like going to each store and like looking for like the one share that you're looking for, that you right. want, right? There was right. no so like liquidity. You, you, place
1: your, you place your bid and then any time between one and three days later, it might get filled. Is that kind of the issue? Yeah,
2: exactly. Yeah. And, it, and there's no, there was no way to, like, find the liquidity. It wasn't easy to right. figure out, like, who wanted to sell who, who versus who wanted to buy. And you that's kind of why you needed these... to,
1: like, cast your line, right? You would cast
0: your line and just hope that somebody
1: nibbles on the hook, right? Is
0: that why they're it... all shouting at each other in yes. all these pictures? Is that why <laughs> yes. they're so loud and, like, arms-waving shouting? It's because exactly. they're casting their line, lines and making a scene so that someone hears their bid.
2: Yes, exactly. <laughs> that, that's, yeah. the, it's, called, it's called open outcry. That's like the, the pit where people would do that. And it literally is self-descriptive. Like people are in the open crying out, <laughs> like. now. okay. So open outcry exchanges are kind of these old school ones. Um, and so what happened was when the internet, even just the idea of the internet came out, you know, DARPA like late 60s, early 70s, people who were traders were like, hey, I could replace this whole relaying system and communicate information about bids and offers between the different stock exchanges without actually having to do this physical relay thing. Right. And, and now all of a sudden people were able to compete on price uh, across different stock exchanges. Mm-hmm. And that was sort of the first glimpse of, Hey, uh, the, this idea of like, Hey, really fast communication networks and a lot of compute power can replace the system of like hundreds of people and like, very uncertain execution like you don't know when you're going to get filled stuff like that
1: so is this kind of like the emergence of the we use the, the phrase liquidity begets liquidity and while that usually is pertaining to specific assets as in like uh the u.s the uh, u.s dollar is liquid and it tracks a bunch of liquidity but right now uh, we are seeing like perhaps uh, you know running on the example of the philadelphia stock exchange Perhaps there is like an internet connection, the first one of the first earliest internet connections between the Philadelphia Stock Exchange and the New York Stock Exchange, and now those two liquidity pools, all of the people shouting in Philadelphia, can also technically also be sh- heard in New York. And so these two liquidity pools are now collapsed into the same, yes. and they, they they same into the same, they, they merge into the same like liquidity pool of the stock exchange. Uh, and is that kind of what we're talking about?
2: Yeah, in the same way that like now, like VCs and like Silicon Valley people love talking about aggregation effects. This was the first aggregation effect due to the internet. It's literally aggregating liquidity across different stock exchanges. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so that there, there looks, was there
1: was still people shouting in the pits, but now the people were connected to more cities, right?
2: Yes, I, okay. I mean, so so people shouting in the pits. Let's say I shouted. Uh, In Philadelphia, prior to the internet, let's Mm -hmm. say I wanted to buy five shares of Disney, and I knew there were only like three brokers who had Disney. I would go like, hey you, broker one, I want five shares of Disney. Broker two, I want five shares of Disney. Broker three, I want five shares of Disney. How much can you sell to me for What's your offer? Prior to the internet, they were literally like getting on the phone, calling someone in New York, saying, "Hey, can you shout in New York and tell me who actually has Disney?" Then that person <laughs> wow. in New York would go sh- you you know what I mean like the- that part got turned into like query mm. uh, <clears throat> And so like slowly but surely, <clears throat> the internet started replacing th- but there were job there were physical like people whose jobs were literally to just like sit and pick up the phone, and the- their jobs were kind of replaced by the by basically the, the computers those are the relayers those are kind of like the bridges relayers, between right. blockchains yeah
1: <laughs> like order routers like there's people who look like they're order routing they're, right you know and like so
2: switchboard like, routers like right you know, uh-huh. phone, phone ones it's like basically like that they were basically doing everything like that prior to the internet Did right and so actually- like
1: in the, we also have like in the in the crypto world we have like dex aggregators right they're going and finding offers at all the different dexes are these like the original exchange like I'll find you the best rates by calling up all the different brokerages at all the different exchanges, and I'll sell you the best one. Same kind of deal? Yes,
2: same deal, except extremely slow.
0: Extremely slow. And with huge
2: fees. With huge fees.
0: (laughs) So this had to be, Tarin, when when this came about, uh, electronic markets started showing up in the 1980s. This had to be hugely transformative for the financial industry. Give us a sense of um, how quickly this happened,
2: Yeah, so you would think it happened really quickly, but kind of a little bit like DeFi, it took place, it it kind of really started with the more esoteric and new assets first rather than the older assets. Hmm. So options, um, so like the right to buy a stock in the future or the right to sell a stock in the future, were sort of uh, done kind of only by legal contract um, prior to maybe like the late 70s. There are two reasons for that. One is um, economists only sort of figured out the math for options to some extent in the 1970s for how you should think about how much an option is worth given how much the stock is worth. But the other thing is that, uh, well, that math is quite computationally intensive. uh, And so you needed a lot of compute power to actually compute what you should think, you know, compute a price to quote for an option. And so... Options had this double-edged sword where they needed both a lot of compute and a lot of like communication about liquidity, how, where the bids and, and asks are. And so they were a natural fit to be the first uh, electronically traded asset because A, you needed a computer to even figure out what the price is, and B, you also needed... You have this problem of like open outcry just doesn't work for, for Options very well.
1: Right. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but Options... In order to really be a, pr- a competitive product, they need more participants than the typical like bid asks of, you know, spot markets. Is that correct?
2: Yeah, to some extent. So so one of the reasons is options trade at every price that, uh, theoretically, they trade at every possible price. Like I can buy an option to buy Apple stock at one cent. I mean, the option will be worth basically nothing. So you have to actually consider all possible future prices, not just the current like buying a spot instrument is like i just bought it i hold it with the option it's it's actually it's its value changes quite a bit as a function of how how much volatility there is in the price of the asset and so there's you could think of it you know in some ways an option is is sort of a form of insurance and so the more volatile an asset is the more you're willing to pay for insurance Mm -hmm. but the problem is you have to compute do a bunch of actuarial math to basically, say, like, how much insurance do I need to get a certain type of exposure or a certain type of protection? And that's where a lot of the compute uh comes in. Mm-hmm. And so, kind of in the way DeFi is like they're these crypto native assets that are kind of computationally annoying, uh, if you were to like turn them into a stock in some weird way. Mm-hmm. Like, like, you know, we, we talk a lot in DeFi about synthetic stocks, but you could also imagine the opposite. What if someone traded synthetic maker? At the new york stock exchange there's no reason they can't in some way they, they do they you, there are synthetic stocks in um, the normal world like for instance chinese companies when they're in the us the stock you're buying is not actually really stock in the chinese company it's actually a synthetic sort of implicitly pegged to the the real thing called an auditory deposit receipt but the the idea is that Kind of esoteric assets that have weird computational needs or weird sort of uh, behavior are always sort of the earliest assets to get adopted by new electronic markets. Um, Right, and so so, options kind of led the eighties.
1: Right, and options just like just to rehash what you said, options were specifically enabled by advancements in our humans ability to compute things thanks to computers, but also importantly, humans connectivity with other humans markets connecting to other markets with the internet. And so this is one of the themes that you've been talking about, like growth in our ability to, you know, leverage the internet for communication, allowed for um, uh, more, more liquidity, more total market participants, and then also our growth in computers allowed for more complex and rich financial products like options so options perhaps never would have been a thing or really not the thing that we know of today without this new first wave of electronic markets is that correct
2: yes so 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 actually maybe that's another very good point uh that you've you've made which is that uh what you're asking about like what's a common thread to each new revolution and each time there's always some new set of financial assets that couldn't have existed without uh, like the, the new type of electronic market.
0: Um, That's a really good point, and we're going to like come back to that. So I can imagine, did, did, did we see like options volume? Because I can imagine that in the old days, you had to get a whole legal crew, like lawyers involved, to draft up options contracts, right? It's super like time-intensive process, cost-intensive process. And so I would imagine options markets and products were very limited but during the 80s, did we see an explosion in options market as a result of uh, this, these electronic markets?
2: Yeah, yeah, we, we definitely did. Actually, that's another, I guess, common common thread uh, is, is each new electronic market revolution removes a layer of lawyers. Like, because <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't... Them. I don't even view DeFi that much as as like a financial revolution as much as like a legal revolution. It's really about just like removing the Matt Levine's like I I use this as kind of a joke. So Matt Levine is kind of this famous Bloomberg columnist who writes this column called Money Stuff, which a lot of people uh, both in finance and outside of finance read. And he he used to be a derivatives lawyer at Goldman. And like I view a lot of the products I see in DeFi as basically replacing his job like he would be like the derivatives lawyers, like looks through the contract, tries to structure how it should be priced, and like now that's being done in like a smart contract. Uh, but I mean, they're not very... called smart
1: contracts for nothing, right? Like contracts. <laughs> that's a that's a legal domain, not a financial domain.
2: Yeah. So so that's another thing to actually keep track of as we go through this is that like think about all the lawyers that are getting removed or like how much le- how much you need a lawyer how much that's reducing
0: well that makes me feel good but like more abstractly i guess what is the role of a lawyer or contracts to begin with it's like this um more abstract notion of like establishing trust between parties right and so i guess what we're doing is we um enabling that trust um to be like pushed into code pushed outward and that just unlocks a, a whole bunch of new use cases, I suppose. So every time we remove a lawyer, we're removing the trust in like, the legal system and the contracts, and we're putting that trust somewhere else. Is that yeah. a way to think about it?
2: Yeah, for sure. I mean, this concept of an exchange tradable asset needs some notion of standardization, right? Like, If I go to a stock exchange, I'm like, I want five shares of Disney and then tomorrow I'm like, I'm gonna sell five shows of Disney. It needs to have fungibility. It needs to be able to like be standardized and people aren't like, no, 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 I don't want the Ryan Disney share. I want the David Disney share. Like it, it can't have that property, right? But the problem is these bespoke financial options, for instance, like employee stock options are a great example of something that's quite bespoke relative to a stock, uh, you know, a normal like option on a, a equity instrument and Obviously, those have very low volume, right? It's like employee stock options; like, you can't trade them. Um, and part of the reason is there's there's like an enforcement mechanism that has to has to take place. And, and so, anytime you want to standardize an asset so that it can be traded without people having to on every trade inspect the asset carefully manually, um, that's kind of when that's the sweet spot for for these types of things. And and over time, like. We, we can do more and more complicated uh, enforcement of transfer logic in code instead of with lawyers because the lawyers and legal system enforce property rights, which is the logic for transfer of anything. And so the like less you need the legal system to enforce that, the more you can increase volume and liquidity. That's sort of the trade-off.
0: So, Turin, what else did we see with the advent of electronic markets in the 1980s? Was it, was it, uh, so we've seen some new products, we've seen the removal of uh, like some lawyers, uh, we've seen standardization of, of assets. Were there any downsides as well to this? Or how did it end? How did this first era end?
2: For sure, yeah. Uh, so, there were, you know, I think kind of in the same way, we've, we've, we've kind of seen DeFi do in one year what took all of the 1980s to do. There was a lot of experimentation with new asset types, and most of them were just options on X, which doesn't sound like a lot, but remember, options were already like kind of this mind-blowing invention then, or mind-blowing that you could trade them and anyone could use them type of invention. Um, And so basically people started experimenting, and then people started doing riskier and riskier kind of options. And what happened in 1987, uh, which uh, was sort of partially driven, the crash that happened was partially driven uh, by the options market, um, was was basically that there are these types of banking institutions uh, called uh, thrifts, I believe. So thrifts or savings and loan banks, if you've ever... Uh, ever heard of it um, but yeah so basically what happened with uh, these thrifts is they were a sort of they were promising much higher interest rates than your normal savings account but they weren't really FDIC insured so they they're not banks that like promise they'll they'll pay you back uh, if they go under or like the government promises to pay you back if they go under and these banks, savings and loan banks, work in the following way. Like people who are depositors earn yield from directly from people who are borrowing to buy houses. So there's they're only like you your 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 money when you put money in to get yield is only used to lend to people who are buying 15 to 30 year mortgages. Right. But the problem was there was a ton of inflation in the 1980s. And uh, the problem with mortgages is mortgages are fixed interest rate products, right? Like you pay, you, you fix the rate at the beginning of the lifetime. That's it. When you're in a really high inflation environment, you, if you're promising the depositors like 5% yield and you're issue you've issued all these like 6% mortgages, right? So there's, there's a little bit of spread. If there's a ton of inflation that 6% is actually worth less and less over time. And it, basically means like you have to do riskier and riskier things. And these savings and loan banks started like trading options and indirectly through weird ways. And that that exacerbated some of the problems that later happened. Um, but what was learned, which was really good data from 1987 was we learned when the option math breaks down. Hmm. So pe- people didn't know exactly how the math should work. Um, and that big collapse kind of helped crystallize in people's minds the benefits and the downsides the risks of um these electronic markets if they weren't designed correctly and people weren't like being very careful with them
1: wait the, um, what what collapsed
2: uh sorry like the stock market had this huge huge collapse um i think it was called black thursday i believe or sorry black wait, monday but
1: was this a, this a this was a consequence of um of uh the the speculation that was going on in, in order to combat interest rates.
2: So do you remember that uh when when GameStop was kind of in peak GameStop I guess March or February or whatever? Yeah, right when uh, I bought, we, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there were a lot of um a lot of memes about uh, something called a gamma squeeze. Right. So what yep. that means is basically option sellers so like Let's say I buy a call option. That means the person selling me sold me the call option, which means that when I exercise it, I have to have a share to deliver to them, right? An option is the right to buy in the future. And so usually people, banks will, who are selling options, you're paying them a premium upfront for it, like, in, like insurance. Uh, they will cover it. So they will go buy the share, so that their exposure is net zero. People in the 1980s didn't totally understand that you need to do this quite carefully, or like, and, and electronic markets help you automate this, but they weren't as good as they became in the 90s to like right. actually automatically hedge your risk, like when you're selling options. And what happened was all of these people who bought options started exercising them because the price crashed and they're like, I wanna buy, like, I, I wanna like put a floor on my loss or something. Mm-hmm. And then the underwriters had to go sell. In this case, they weren't call options, they're all puts, but they had to go sell shares. And then there's kind of this compounding effect. They sell shares, push the price down, more people would exercise, people would sell more shares. And you had this kind of like, this kind of the opposite feedback of sort loop. of like, a, yeah, you had this bad feedback loop. And like that kind of, that was the first time we had a sort of like electronic market in the modern definition sense collapse due to this feedback loop. And because it's an electronic market, it wasn't easy to stop. Right in the I'm in the pits, raising my hand thing, the 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 referee. I mean, like whoever owns a stock exchange, who they they actually literally had people who would like have whistles and stuff. So I, I, I prefer I like to call them the referees, uh, and then they just like blow the whistle, like no trading.
1: <laughs> Guys, can you please right? stop trading? And yeah, no, it was
2: actually literally that. Like there there, there was like the 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 whistle person to do that. So. This was something that was new, right? This this didn't exist prior to having electronic markets. We weren't used to this idea that like these things could just like run on their own and and kind right. of have big collapses. So um, but I think what happened after that was the, the crazy thing is that options volume crashed after 1987. And then people slowly started to get more and more comfortable with like buying options and then for banks and hedge funds and stuff, hedging their risk in options. And options volume just grew exponentially since has not decreased. Um, and so, you know, the 90s, especially in the first tech bubble boom, um, we actually saw kind of the markets, even when we had the dot-com crash, the market didn't collapse due to like bad risk management. Um, the market collapsed because there's no demand, which is much safer than what happened in 1987. And so that that was kind of, you know, I, I kind of bucket those two boom and bust that boom and bust cycle as like the first era because, you know, what happened in the '80s was, you know, a few people realized how to do this, and there was kind of a small set of people who really uh, understood like the technology. Uh, and then, of course, once the crash happened, then a lot of people were like, hey, what is this thing people are doing? Like regulators st- started looking into it more. Uh, but then in the '90s. Uh, what happened was basically everyone realized, hey, I could just start a stock exchange. Or I, in the same way that you have, hey, I can just like fork this AMM and mm. you know, deploy it somewhere else. Uh, and and, and, and the, there's kind of this weird effect of like there was tons of new stock exchanges and then they eventually collapsed uh, and that's what leads us to 2.0.
1: Before we get to, to phase 2.0, I, I want to hammer on some details about the first wave. Uh, and my intuition is that these this new new frontier at the time of electronic markets enabled by the internet and computation also probably i'm guessing opened up the or lowered the barrier to to entry for more new participants right like like and the, the the theme that i think is also probably true is same thing with DeFi, right like I personally probably never would have gotten into the world of finance if it weren't for crypto. The invention of crypto opened up the doors to more and more people to be more inclusive and include them into what was previously a more permissioned, more siloed industry. Is that, did that same theme happen in the first wave of electronic markets? And, and who were the people that were new to finance that like the emergence of the electronic markets really enabled them to come into the fold?
2: Yeah, so... Um... That's a great question. Uh, so, two things. So, so my first, you know, my first job was I worked uh, somewhere for this this billionaire um, who was a CS professor at Columbia in the nineteen eighties. He left and went to go work at Morgan Stanley after, and then after a year of like kind of being pushed around by the jocks, uh, jock old school trader people. Uh, he left to start this hedge fund, which is, you know, one of the most successful quantitative hedge funds um, that has been made. Uh, but a lot of the people in the 80s and 90s were really like CS and hardware and technology people who like never would have been exposed. And it's sort of similar in DeFi in a lot of ways. Um, but there is another another example. Like, so, yeah, in the beginning, for the very first wave was actually a lot of academics in math and physics, and like, uh, basically, like people who had to do the quant math modeling for things like options, because like no one knew how to use I, them.
1: The, fi- the um, finance
2: people couldn't figure it out, so they needed yeah. to get
1: like the the quants and the and the math math whizzes in there as well.
2: Exactly, and then by the '90s, things had people had a better understanding, and you got way more of the computer scientists, technologists style of people. So I think one of the coolest examples of this, there are two examples. Um, The first example is um, there's this company, I forget the name of the founder, but there's a company called Automated Trading Desk, which was a guy in West Virginia who, who was just a developer just made a exchange in his backyard. He just like made, you know, back then there's no data centers, So he just bought a bunch of computers in his garage and at some point had like 20% of U.S. equities volume um, running through this like basement in West Virginia because he was just undercutting everyone on fees. He was just charging like one-tenth of what like Nasdaq and NYSE NICE were doing. Um, and then Citigroup got, you know, kind of like FOMO and then they they bought automated trading us for like $800 million. And so it's like, There was this kind of like, oh, if you have a good idea, you can get rich type of thing, which Hmm. kind of uh, I think also resembles. I've heard this one before.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Definitely some recurring themes. I want to talk about one last one, maybe, before we leave um, the the 1.0 era of electronic markets. And that's, we had this kind of maybe nasty crisis that was um, partially as a result of electronic markets in 1987, the the Black Monday that you're talking about. Did regulators step in after that? And what happened to the the incumbents? Was there uh, some consolidation? Um, So how did regulators react, and how did the market shake out from a uh, consolidation or centralization perspective?
2: Yeah, that's actually a great question. So regulators really focused on the thrifts. So they focused on these people who were buying the options and less on the stock exchanges. so what happened was there's was a ton of bank consolidation. So like a lot of the mega banks you see now, the the seeds of consolidation happened then. Like Citigroup at that time in 1987, forget about group, it was just Citibank, and they only had like they were only like in New York and like Boston or something. And there's this guy named Sandy Weill who became the CEO and he went on this like MA spree and just bought up Like, hundreds of banks. And one of the reasons he was successful was partially because, like, of the savings and loan crisis. Because, like, government regulators, like, started regulating these savings and loan banks, became too unprofitable to be, like, podunk town community bank, uh, that's a savings and loan bank, thrift. And so they were all like kind of for fire sale for cheap. And so he had the strategy of just like buying up every bank. And and then that's kind of how we got to the the current state was regulators regulate the banks and not the exchanges and brokers. But uh, that theme will be recurring in 2.0. I think the time when regulators started to realize they had to maybe do something uh, in regulating the exchanges was in 1997 uh, which is toward the end of this first era, uh, there was what was called the Asian financial crisis, and the Asian financial crisis, uh, you know, I think is is well detailed in this book called "When Genius Failed," um, about this like these like Nobel Prize economists who started this hedge fund that actually caused some of the collapse. <laughs> so.
0: Okay, so like wrapping up um, the first era, we have. We, we've we've gone from this analog era where we had orders in the pits and, and manual human order operators to this, the, this first inkling of electronic markets. And what that did was there was a massive liquidity boom, right? Made these markets more efficient. Um, it enabled new assets. It removed a layer of lawyers. As you said, there was some asset standardization. We had lower barriers to entry, so all sorts of new entrants. Uh, it kind of ended or got bumpy in a crisis. Regulators stepped in. There was some consolidation. These are some of the lessons we learned from the first era. Now, Trun, uh, take us to the second era. P- pick us up. And I think it maybe starts in the late 1990s or early 2000s. Yeah. Uh, where are yeah, we in th- our timeline?
2: Yeah, I think the Asian financial crisis might be the end, like 1997. Let, let's let's we'll see 80s that. To now, 1997.
0: So now we're in era two. What, what happened in electronic markets era two?
2: Same way that people get FOMO'd by crypto and the price to go up, people got FOMO'd by all these tech IPOs, like pets.com and whatever, all all these like things that, you know, uh, if you're old enough, you might remember like your parents being like, I got to buy, get E-Trade and Charles Schwab and go like buy this company. Have you ever heard of it? (laughs) Uh, Like, uh, and so that era, part of the reason that like the E-Trades and stuff of the world could work was that electronic markets made it cheap enough um, for new businesses, new entrants to actually build these kind of front end businesses that faced the reta- retail users, faced consumers and hid the complexity from them, but also didn't require extreme like ownership of like a brokerage firm, like, like extreme, you don't have to do as much work as a bank, right? The idea is like you. the electronic markets made it easy to be Kind of like a light bank. You could view E Trade or Charles Schwab as like bank light.
0: Is this like a early fintech? Would you say or not quite? Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly, early fintech. Like at each each uh, uh, phase, I think there were sort of like bridge companies that connected the two sides. These hybrids. So like in this side, yeah, in this side, it was like E Trade, Charles Schwab when they became electronic, uh, Interactive Brokers, which are a public company, and then on the between phase two and phase three, it's Robinhood, and the real question to me is, is like, if I map this to tech companies, Robinhood is sort of like MySpace in some weird way. Like <laughs> that, if we if we view DeFi as like kind of the 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 the, the future, um,
1: and we're saying that Robinhood is transcending phase two and phase three just because it has crypto assets on its platform, right?
2: Yeah, and they also like provide provide this like zero fees thing is kind of like. Sure. I, I think like this idea, that idea is like very not phase two in a lot of ways, in other ways. It's not really phase three either, but it's, it right. sort of makes it unique.
1: And so it's, it really sounds like the delineation between these phases is not clear, as in there is, there is no event that cl- that delineates between phase one and phase two, and there is no event that delineates between
2: two and three. It's just kind of an I, an I think the Asian theme. financial crisis plus um, the development of E-Trade that era 1997 and people getting home computers mm. was the, it I can't give you like a date, uh, right. like the precision I will give you is one year, but 1997 sure. is, is like a very good point to say, because that was the time when kind of retail users were FOMOed into buying stocks. And they're like, why should I pay a broker? And like people who were young and had their first computer and mm. dial up internet were like, I can just buy this online. It's cheaper. Right. Why would I go to this brokerage, pay them 5% when I can pay like $8 fixed? Cause it, you, that was a big innovation in fees at that time that you had to pay a fixed price for an arbitrary size trade before that you had to pay percentage points. Right.
1: And so would you, you, would you say that phase two is really a story of financial markets and brokerages making their way into the homes of the every, everyday People, everyday persons, because of computers, because of the personal computer,
2: and the internet, and the internet, and the internet, and yeah, and, and home internet, um, and, and also the dot com boom was made it a little bit like uh, Ouroboros. like it, it, it ate itself because like people were investing in all these companies giving internet to people at home. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> it's, 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 uh, of course, you know people had a bit of exuberance, just like but you know, like we see in crypto all the time. Um, and maybe it went a little crazy. And then, you know, we had this kind of pullback. Um, but after the dot-com bubble uh, crashed, it was a very gentle crash in the sense that none of the financial infrastructure broke. Like in right. Black Monday, 1987, 1997, the Asian financial crisis, the financial infrastructure actually just broke. Like like markets behaved in ways they were not supposed to. There weren't correct like risk settings done there wasn't like risk monitoring there weren't people really paying attention because the risks weren't really you know when it's when something's new it's oftentimes really people sort of at the on the edge who are playing with these things but they're not like trying to actually analyze them they're just like ah, i want to like play with cool new gambling toys mm-hmm. and uh so those standards get learned over time and and there are people who, are, who kind of do that Uh, without
1: without trying to trying to stay on the same path but also going down those quick little side quests what does it mean for a market to break as in like do things just not clear is that how you define a market breaking or just kind of go into that a little bit more what does it mean for
2: for sure in 1987 definitely not clearing was certainly one of the problems and not settling like like there just weren't enough shares like brokers promised x amount of shares delivered and those shares didn't materialize and like that caused people to have even further lack of confidence because they're like, "Oh, I thought I bought the share, and now I can't like sell everything right. else, right?" Like they're, may, they're, may,
1: maybe markets breaking is I like, well, I brought these shares, and some some company I have this legal contract where they owe me shares, and they don't have them to deliver. Therefore, we're going to court.
2: We go back it was to the, the Twitter lawyers. fail whale. Yes, going to court. It was the Twitter fail whale. I don't know if right. you guys remember when <laughs> yeah. Twitter started. Yeah, they were yeah. just like always down. Like this. This is like. That that's kind of what I mean. Like you're mm-hmm. trying to use the service, to, like buy or sell things, and like it just doesn't. Right. It's definitely down.
0: Tarun, would you say 2008 was another example of markets breaking? A little bit different than like the dot-com bust, in that you know that was a bubble yeah. and a bust. But 2008 was a bit more like, oh, we don't really understand these financial uh, new new financial products that are on our balance sheet.
2: Yes. <laughs> 2008 was things breaking for sure. Uh, again, because it was like. In the same way in 1987 people didn't understand properties of options and like when certain risks need to be hedged and, and when you know like when they aren't hedged like what the worst case scenario is. people just were like oh well that's a low probability event and it turns out it's not when everyone is trying to sell at the same time same thing in 2008 it's just that it was done with way more complicated derivatives that have no transparency um, and so there's kind of this theme that whenever there's a big blow up oftentimes you find under the covers that there's this kind of these assets that people don't realize hold risk but actually are holding a ton of risks um so I,
0: I could definitely see the um the, the lens that we've been using which is like the the new entrants are these retail people with uh with their computers um we've got increased liquidity i suppose coming from from retail yeah. do we have any new assets in this era i guess we have some innovations yeah. in like trading fees, that sort of thing. But are there like we saw the birth of options really in in the first era? Um, do we get a new set of assets in? Yeah, Canada? yeah,
2: yeah. Actually, I would I would maybe delineate this era uh, to be more precise as like 1997 to 2012, um, and it has both a boom and a bust. The last cycle had a boom and a bust, and, and it actually sort of had two busts but here here we have sort of like you know the build up to the financial crisis and the financial crisis and then kind of the recovery post financial crisis um, and the reason i'm stopping in 2012 is i put the robin hood era plus crypto i'm i'm sort of mixing those two in the kind of the new era uh, with defi sort of being kind of the the where we're living we're living in that era now um, mm-hmm. but what happened then was were a couple things. So, uh, in this era, there were a lot of new financial products, uh, mortgage-backed securities of different forms. Like, the, mortgage-backed securities always existed, but they didn't become tradable uh, until this era. And one of the reasons they didn't become tradable was people didn't have a math model that they thought worked. Um, of course, we learned that was not a very good model, but. <laughs> But we also learned that with options in 1987, so it, 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 there is quite a bit of similarity. Uh, and once people had a model, they could like write algorithms to, to quote prices, uh, and then things became exchange tradable. You need fewer lawyers. You have way more compute power. We're we're like in this like Moore's Law era at that time, where compute power is doubling every 18 months on average, right? Your your home computer was getting doubly as fast every one and a half years. Uh, and mobile phones were kind of starting to to take off around then. Um, although, yeah, I think apps were really sort of the end of this era. Um, but the new instruments were like uh, kind of volatility futures, uh, so like the VIX, um, ETFs. So this was the era when people started really um, for lack of a better phrase, aping into passive investments. And this completely changed the market structure um, of the financial markets. So an ETF right, is a share of something you buy, that exchange tradable fund, which thanks to electronic markets improving in their efficiency, let you get a lot an exposure to some type of sector. Let's say I wanna buy the metals uh, metal miners sector, mm. but I don't want to go buy each individual stock. I just want to own metal miners that's when I own the equal sector, yeah. percentage. Yeah. But it needs to rebalance. Maybe I just want 10% miners, 10% um, like, I don't know, I don't know, 50% miners, 50% like distributors in that industry. Um, mm. And I want a 50 50 weighted portfolio, just like a Uniswap liquidity share. I want 50 50. Cool. But that means I have to go trade to try to like keep it rebalanced. And that sucks. And so, what people were doing before then is you pay these active mutual fund managers and you pay a really big fee to them uh, to keep it rebalanced. And so, ETFs were once people were able to write algorithms that were much better at holding option risk programmatically, um, ETFs became possible because you could basically say, Hey, we're going to, uh, here's how, here's how, what the portfolio is going to look like. Here's how we're going to rebalance it. And it's going to be done electronically. There's not going to be a human in the loop actively saying what to buy and sell. And there's going to be this arbitrage game that's created to keep the portfolio roughly balanced. Um, So so where
1: does the role of communication and computation come in with these ETFs? How, how does improvements in these two things really enable that product?
2: Yeah. So the improvement in communication is that uh, you know, somewhere in the middle of this era, so 2003 to 2006, uh, the U.S. government decided that they really wanted to um, make sort of arguably at that time, you know, what they said the intention was was not what the outcome was, but the what the stated uh, goal was was to make markets um, more sort of equitable, every stock exchange had to offer the national best bid and offer. And what that means is let's say, let's go back to my example of like the New York Stock Exchange and the Chicago Stock Exchange. Let's say they're owned by two different companies. One is NASDAQ, one is NYSE. And let's say that there are two there's a company that's listed on both. So there's GM shares at NYSE Ni- Niz- and there's GM shares at NASDAQ. Well, before, the prices were allowed to be different. So the NYSE Niz- could tell you GM's share price is $30. NASDAQ could tell you it's $25. But that was just because like the people trading on NASDAQ think it's $25 and the people trading on NYSE Niz- think it's 30 the U.S. made this regulation called Regulation Neutral Market Service, Reg NMS, and it basically said every market had to actually go look at every other exchange and quote you the best price. So basically, this meant that NYSE actually had to go to NASDAQ and say, like, hey, NASDAQ, what price are you offering? And hey, we, we have to offer it at the same price. Because there, there's this idea that this would be like more fair and transparent. This caused insane consolidation. This is the reason we have like so few exchanges uh, in
1: well, general. This, this also just seems completely antithetical to the concept of markets in the first place. Uh, so it, the SEC is the the agency that put in the regulation NMS in, in place. And they're just dictating that the market must price certain assets at a specific price as dictated by the lowest or, or the best, most optimized Uh, market participant that's giving the best price and they're saying like everyone else must offer that same price that seems a little bit crazy
2: right and i i think it was like that i still like so i wasn't working in the industry at that time so i don't have at that i don't understand what the intention was because like you read the law it doesn't really make any sense in modern terms because basically it led to this consolidation we have where you have an oligopoly of like Citadel jump, few other people who are the main market makers. So it turned everything into this computer science, distributed systems problem of how do I synchronize many nodes? Each think of each exchange as a node. How do I synchronize prices across all nodes in the minimum amount of time? Um, Because like there's an arbitrage profit. So the government basically created this like weird arbitrage profit, and the exchanges exchanges don't want to take risk. They don't want to be traders. They just want to like collect fees on every on volume. So what they did is they in- invented market maker, maker taker rebates, which you, you may be familiar from just on centralized exchanges or even yield farming in some ways, as sort of a maker taker rebate. Um, but they, they basically offered you incentives for making sure their pri- they they met the reg NMS rules. So like if you did a bunch of volume and you also did a bunch of trades that made sure that like the NASDAQ price and the NYSE price were synchronized, then you got a cheaper, you you basically got a discount on your fees. Um, and that kind of led to this heavy consolidation, both in exchanges um, and also in trading firms that were market makers. So you remember how I said in era one, there was this... this kind of wild west of like hey this guy in west virginia just like made an exchange that had 20 percent of the daily volume there were tons of exchanges like that in the 90s right. dotcom crash killed a bunch of them and then this regulation really killed all of them and and now we're back to kind of this like oligopoly we have like cme chicago mercantile exchange NASAC, NICE, and that's it pretty much
1: and and just rehash why the emergence of etfs were so important in uh, helping accelerate this story
2: Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So sorry. So, so ETFs are kind of guaranteed trading volume. So one thing that that all of the kind of like smart I put in air quotes money at that time was saying was like, oh, ETFs are dumb. There's tons of adverse selection. Everyone's picking them off. It's exactly the same as SBF saying Uniswap will fail because like everyone, there's a ton of adverse selection. There's a ton of adverse selection, but all these people don't care. They're fine. What's adverse 30%. selection?
0: Yeah. What do you mean by adverse selection?
2: Yeah, so so adverse selection uh, basically means like, you know, you're when I'm an ETF and I'm the ETF is like, hey, I have to buy 500 shares every day to keep my 50 percent 50 50 ratio of my two uh-huh. assets. You're telling the market you're going to be a big buyer, and mm-hmm. so everyone will front run you and just buy in front of you, and then you they'll sell to you at a higher price, right? Mm-hmm. So let's say the current price. Is ten dollars. Everyone knows the ETF has to buy new shares at three fifty nine PM. Everyone goes at three fifty eight PM, buys up all the shares, pushes the price to two dollars, and the ETF has to buy at two dollars, and they all sell into that. Okay. So, so like all the MEV stuff you see is the same as this. So mm-hmm. it, it, it's it, it. But the idea is that like, hey, the ETF's telling you what's doing, so you're going to get front run. So then anyone who holds the ETF is going to lose money. Uh, That's sort of true, but it's also there are a lot of people who like, they'd rather just own any exposure, even if it's losing money in the like, it's not the optimal exposure, it's still better than sitting on cash for them, right? right. Like, and they, right. they they don't have to think they literally just buy the thing and they, it's sitting in the Robinhood account.
0: It's like and lazy LP.
2: Trade. Yeah, it's lazy LPing, right? Like, and passive investing always wins. Like, if there's anything that this era has taught us is that passive investing used to be 10% of the market in the early 2000s. It's like 80% of volume in the stock market
1: right now. Just because of ETFs?
2: Because of ETFs. And then there's all these other types of like, like all the active managers and mutual funds now rebranded themselves as like, Hey, we're like active light. We don't do much trading, (laughs) but but that's all boomer finance. That's like targeted to boomers. Like mutual funds are truly like I don't I don't think anyone under I don't think a single Gen Z person knows what mutual funds like. Right. <laughs> Wait, so just just
1: to just of uh, finalize the this train of thought, the the ETFs and the consolidation of um, and then consolidation in the industry. Uh, we we actually haven't finished finished that topic. How how yeah. did the emergence of ETFs lead to the consolidation that we know today?
2: Ah, right, right, right. So ETFs had a bunch of guaranteed volume, right? They're telling you mm-hmm. when they're buying and selling. Right. And people in the same way that Robin hood sells their or order flows, Citadel, the ETF underwriters, the banks who just want to collect some small fee, they collect a very small fee on creating and redeeming. So creating is I, let's say I, there's an ETF called the car ETF, the American, the Detroit ETF. And it you, you, it, it's made up of a portfolio of, One-third Ford, one-third GM, and one-third Chrysler. Mm -hmm. Um, So to create an ETF share, I like an LP share, right? When I create a Uniswap LP share, I have to give them ETH and I have to give USDC. Here, I would take maybe two shares of GM, one share of Chrysler, and half a share of uh, Ford. And I would give it to the ETF underwriter and then give me one unit of ETF share. Same thing as like making a Uniswap LP share. Uh, And then there's a redemption process, which is I can redeem one share for for the fair value. And so that's this arbitrage game, just like with LP shares that uh, ETFs created to kind of like keep themselves synchronized to the market prices. So if someone observed a uh, deviation in the price, they could buy the basket uh, for cheap, sell create the share and then sell the share for more, and then that way the prices I... would track it, exactly like Uniswap. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, basically, that arbitrage game became extremely profitable if you bought order flow from the ETF. So you you were you were go- the ETF underwriters, the people who are minting and creating the shares, like BlackRock. Uh, you basically were like, hey, BlackRock sell me your order flow and I'll execute it and make sure, make sure it stays synchronized. And so so there's a lot of that, that the passive order flow aggregated a ton of volume, but then all the volume got sold to a small number of people executing it in the exact same way Robinhood is. Now it provided better execution. It also lowered fees for people, but it did consolidate the industry into to a, a very small number of players.
1: So a very small number of players were responsible and had control over the order flow and that that starts to in my mind lead us into like kind of how the whole robin hood gamestop debacle how the foundations for that were set right it would, would you say that that's correct like the, what you are talking about right now is the the tremors before the actual event of the, the whole gamestop debacle would that would you say that's correct
2: yeah yeah this was the same thing happening at the like institutional level like with order flow. like Basically, banks used to be market makers. They used to be quoting prices on markets. Electronic markets made it possible for small firms Mm -hmm. who were not banks and didn't have a banking license to quote much faster if they had better technology. And so all these technologists, like my old boss, in the 80s and 90s, they basically front-run banks into being market makers. But then once we had this kind of flip of the passive investing world, banks were like, hey, we're not even going to try to market it. We're just going to sell our order flow and it's easier income for us. Uh, And then that led to further consolidation. That's why like new trading firms are actually very hard to start right now, I would say. In in, in TradFi. In in crypto, of course, it's, it's green pastures, but...
1: Totally. So, so let's, in order to keep on like defining this wave to phase two of uh, electronic markets, can you kind of compare and contrast the, the start of phase two and the end of phase two uh, uh, and like, you know, where, what was, where the state of things while phase two was getting uh, started and then once, you know, phase two was kind of coming towards maturity and kind of finishing up, where did it end up as?
2: Yeah. So it started with the dot com crash and kind of like a lot more, uh, like uh, people, kind of a little bit like the crypto bear market. Like people, basically, re- there wasn't much retail. There was only kind of like institutions, mm-hmm. and institutions were trying to figure out new products like ETFs. By the end, we had these these products really growing massively and increasing retail uptake um but we also had very few players who were able to be the uh market participants who are market makers and so in the same in a lot of ways like market making became just like a very small set of people who could actually do it mm-hmm. um which you know unlike in defi where like anyone can be a liquidity provider if you want to be um i think that 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 sort of is uh You know, we started, there were more, maybe like a lot of market participants, not many retail products, by the end, new retail products, not many market participants.
1: Right. So we, in in phase two, and I think also perhaps phase one as well, we are increasing the accessibility of markets to more and more participants. Yet the service providers, the people actually routing trades and making sure things execute has consolidated to a fewer and fewer set of people. You say that's correct? Yep. And what's the role of uh, the stock exchanges in, in phase two? Where are, where's the, the, the NASDAQ? Where, where's the New York Stock Exchange? How, how did those grow and develop during phase two?
2: Yeah, so those uh, grew kind of the way in the, you know, you know, after the savings and loan crisis, I said the governments like regulated these drifts and then like you got these conglomerate mega banks uh, you had the same thing happen um, where basically like after Reg NMS came up, basically it was impossible to be a, a small upstart exchange and everyone just sold to CME or, 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 or NASDAQ or NYSE. So like the big exchange conglomerates you see now are, they just basically bought up everyone. So when I say fewer market participants, I also mean fewer venues.
1: Right, right, right. And, and also, correct me if I'm wrong, but we're also kind of seeing like the very early days of what the crypto knows as MEV also crop up during phase two, uh, where like the, there's, a you know, everyone wants their orders prioritized first, and then the people routing the orders have the advantage. Can you talk about the early days of MEV, but in electronic markets phase two, which we wouldn't even have called it MEV. What would, what does he, did he, Just he high even frequency have a name? Trading. High-frequency high frequency trading. trading? Like Talk high, about the emergence of
2: that. Yeah, high-frequency trading really refers to like when exchanges started um, selling co-location. So exchanges were like, hey, you know what? We should actually sell, I wouldn't say it's like selling priority, but they kind of were like, hey, we'll like sell priority in some weird way. Where if you pay to rent a server at our data center, You get slightly faster execution speed, Um, and then it became Mm -hmm. this kind of like hardware war of like who could build the the best hardware. Um, And high frequency trading boiled down to like who could build the best hardware so that your order got the the moment you got a new signal, you could process the signal as fast as possible and like output an order um, as fast as possible. And so so people started making custom hardware for that, Uh, and that that kind of was like. I'd say like the peak peak HFT was actually post financial crisis. Mm. Pre financial crisis, the technology wasn't that good. Post financial crisis, I think I think the financial crisis in general kind of caused the exchanges to be like, hey, we need to diversify our business model. And then there was also this new wave of of HFT people who are way more hardware and CS and way less quant. And they were sort of the the wave of people who were who were doing that. So some i guess i like i worked in hft before i came to crypto so mm-hmm. but like it it's definitely like a industry that's like focused on uh like speed and execution and less on like did i have the right math model is there still a,
0: a huge arms race in hft run
2: yeah i mean it's kind of the arms race in hft has also led to like super consolidation hmm. um because like just yeah, the cost of like hardware, microwave towers, everything is, is, is gone up exponentially. And the profits have decayed. Uh, so like, yeah, basically it's the profits have totally decayed. They're kind of flatlined. But if the cost of hardware is going up every year, then it's like only the biggest ones are going to survive.
1: Would you say the the whole high frequency trading phenomenon? Would that is that more of an afterthought of the phase two of electronic markets, or is that like a core component of it? It's definitely That's a core component by, at the
2: end. Yeah,
1: at the end. Why at the end?
2: So I think the financial crisis caused people to be very cost conscious, which led which will lead into phase three. Uh, and so when people are cost conscious, uh, they want really fast execution um, because there's a sense in which the faster your execution. The lower the uh, information difference between market participants, because like markets are synchronized faster, and that means the prices are, are the closest to the true price uh, in some sense. Um, the MEV part of this was just like, well, hey, if there's a ton of people competing to be first, then they're all competing and keeping the the prices synchronized, right? Like they they there there's sort of a sense in which uh, competition does drive prices down. The MEV case is a little weird, though, because the order flow is public, right? So it it took Citadel a while and Virtue and others to realize they should be buying order flow by writing contracts. So you do high-frequency trading, but you sign multi-year deals with Robinhood or whatever to buy all their order flow. In MEV land, it's actually quite different. Uh, The order flow is just public, right? Like it's Mm -hmm. sent to the mempool. Uh, of course, like with some, some nuance, I mean, some miners let you send order flow directly and stuff like that. But.
0: So be- before we finish out uh, the, the second era and go to the, the third era that, that we are in right now, I uh, got to ask the question, did we remove any lawyers in this in this 2.0 era?
2: Yeah, I think we like added a bunch of lawyers in the beginning because like people wanted to make these crazy volatility products and mortgage-backed securities and weird derivatives uh, like the Matt Levines of the world, that's that's when their careers took off. Financial crisis killed all those lawyers, I would say. <laughs> okay. Uh, you know, I think there's a reason he's a journalist now and not doing that. For I mean that. I mean, there's probably many reasons, but the, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I would say that's probably one of
1: them. <laughs> what about the second phase? Really killed the
2: lawyers. Uh, I think basically the advent of high frequency trading. And the advent of passive investing vehicles meant you didn't have to do all sorts of weird structuring. Because the passive investing vehicles made this arbitrage game a little bit like Uniswap that kind of replaced the lawyers having to do the pricing. The market was able to do the pricing without them. It's a weird. Oh, go ahead, David.
0: When it comes to
1: the financial crisis, how did the state of the market structure, as a result of the changes that we saw in phase two, did that did the, did the way that the markets were set up and and you know um, architected, did that change or or impact the the financial crisis at all?
2: Um, I think it did for these kind of like esoteric securities, like mortgage backed securities, mm-hmm. um, partially because like those were all traded on weird venues or over-the-counter between banks. So there's no transparency into how the contracts, what the terms of the contract are and how they get executed and what triggers payments. Um, And I think, you know, when we go to phase three, we'll talk about how, like, that DeFi is kind of, like, makes, uh, lets you do that without lawyers. And so, like, and also while making it transparent as to what the payoffs are.
1: Hey guys, I hope you're enjoying the conversation thus far. In the second half of the show, we get into Electronic Markets 3.0 or DeFi and talk about some of these companies that are transcending the barriers or transcending the gap between 2.0 and 3.0. Uh, Robinhood, Coinbase, Centralized Exchanges, these come to mind. But also we talk about the different ways that Electronic Markets 3.0, 3.0 Ethereum and DeFi are fundamentally constructed differently and where electronic markets 3.0 really rhyme better with 1.0 rather than 2.0. I thought that was a fantastic conversation. And then we also get into the new risks of DeFi. Now that DeFi has come and solved a lot of the problems that we find in the legacy world, what new risks have we introduced? And what is uh, Tarun doing at Gauntlet to help deal with some of these risks? Hope you're enjoying the conversation. There's so much more to get into before we go any further. However, we have to talk a moment about these fantastic sponsors that make this show possible. When you shop for plane tickets, you probably use Kayak, Expedia, or Google to compare ticket prices. So why would you limit yourself to just one exchange when you trade crypto? When you make your trades, you want to make sure that you're getting the best possible price on your trade and that you aren't paying high gas costs that you could have otherwise avoided. That's why you should be using Matcha. Matcha routes your orders across all the various DeFi exchanges on Ethereum, Polygon, Binance Smart Chain, and gives you the best possible prices without taking any commissions. Matcha has smart order routing that splits your order across multiple liquidity sources if Matcha sees that it gets you better pricing. Trading on Matcha is super easy because it pools the liquidity for me into a single easy-to-use platform. Matcha also allows for you to make limit orders on-chain so you can set and forget your DeFi trades and they will go through automatically while you're away. New to Matcha is an integrated fiat on-ramp so you can purchase crypto directly with your credit or debit card and have that fiat be instantly traded for any token that has liquidity. When you're making a trade head over to matcha.xyz/bankless and connect your wallet to start getting the best prices and most liquidity when you trade your crypto assets bankless is proud to be supported by uniswap uniswap is a new paradigm in asset exchange infrastructure Instead of a cumbersome order book system where trades are matched with other humans, Uniswap is an autonomous piece of software on Ethereum, which is what Ryan and I call a money robot. No human counterparties or centralized intermediaries, just autonomous code on Ethereum. Input the token you want to sell and receive the token you want to buy. Something brand new in the Uniswap ecosystem is the Uniswap grants program is now accepting applications for grants. We have been saying this for a while and we'll say it again. DAOs have money and they are in need of labor. If you think that you have something to contribute to the Uniswap DAO, apply for a grant to Uniswap. Just look at the size of the Uniswap treasury. It's almost $3 billion. This mountain of capital is looking for labor. Do you have something of value to contribute to the Uniswap DAO? No matter how big or small your idea is, you can apply for a uni grant at unigrants.org and help steer Uniswap in the direction that you think it should go. That's exactly what we did to get Uniswap to be a sponsor for Bankless, and you can do the same for your project. Thank you, Uniswap, for sponsoring Bankless. So I, I think it's time that we actually move on to, to phase three. But first, all, I'd like to summarize phase two. How, how would you characterize, like if you, if you could do it in just like a sentence or two, how would you characterize the legacy of, of phase two? What, what did
2: it leave behind as we go into phase three? Passive investing is the main way the market wants to invest if you want to increase the number of market participants. Mm -hmm. Um, Two, HFT completely annihilates the banks from market making. Um, Mm. And then the order flow business uh, is created, but for institutions, not for retail. But phase 3 we'll move to that.
1: And what's the themes, the incoming themes for phase three? And also, was there some sort of, uh, you know, uh, event or year that really had, uh, marked the the leaving of phase two and the entrance into phase three?
2: Yeah. So I think you know, if I if I go by industry profits, the the peak profit in year for high frequency trading was two thousand twelve. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that sort of like signals to me one of the ends, like the that that was like the pinnacle of that era and what happened in t- from 2012 on was this new uh new entrance of retail via apps like Robinhood and also via crypto um, retail into to markets in general uh and i think like centralized crypto and robinhood are sort of the stepping stone um and defi is sort of like the expression of like that taken to kind of its logical extreme of, of how can, how can we re- sort of remove middlemen? So the thing about HFT is it's often reviled, um, like, Oh, people front running us. Mm-hmm. But the weird thing is the prices for everyone, the reason Robin hood can exist and offer you free trading is because like HFT is so competitive that the prices just like fell through the floor. And basically uh, you know, these like traditional brokers can't take like percentage points at all anymore, right? right? So there's You high-frequency
1: traders brought prices to the floor. Do you mean like the arbitrage opportunity as in like margins for yeah. arbitrage like, tighter and tighter and tighter?
2: T- exactly. And so like a lot of these like old school brokers who like that's, that's where they made their money mm-hmm. uh, couldn't do it without a ton of technology and a ton of resources. Um, and so like obviously the technologists kind of killed the cats in that case.
1: So, would you say phase three is not, phase, phase three isn't DeFi. It's more about access to markets. And so, I think perhaps the reason why you're including Robinhood in phase three, even though it has nothing really to do with crypto, other than the fact that it's, it allows crypto assets on this platform. Robinhood
2: is the weed of DeFi, it's the gateway drug. It's, it's like the gateway it's drug, like...
1: right? Uh huh. <laughs> Coin, Coinbase 2, perhaps. Like these are these are these apps that yes. are like phase two point five, maybe. Yeah, really? they're, they're kind they're, of they're... these transition
2: things. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, so so how would you characterize phase three then? What's the theme of phase three? Why does phase three exist?
2: I think the theme of phase three is internet culture and memes will beat suits in some sense, and mm-hmm. you know I think a lot of people who are doing quant trading probably have had better decades than they did since kind of this era. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: but and what is the, what is the underlying technology of phase three that really unlocked phase three?
2: Yeah. So there, there are two, two aspects to it. One is new backends. So new backend technologies that replace intermediaries. So that's mm. crypto. Um, and the other is the mobile phone. Mm. So, you know, yes, the iPhone came out in 2007, but if you remember, for like two or three years, Apple not only didn't have an uh, app store, but you could jailbreak your phone and like install these kind of like renegade third-party uh, app stores. And we kind of had a little bit of like the like, hacker culture uh, in mobile phones that completely got eviscerated by the App Store. And so like by 2011-ish. Uh, I think, I feel like that was, that was sort of the, you know, the, the era of like centralization in, in, in mobile phone land. Um, And why is that as such a thematic component of phase three? Why does that matter so much? Because it changed the user experience for finance. Like basically people got super comfortable once they got comfortable with mobile phones and apps, they also got comfortable with mobile finance. Like doing finance on your phone, and the idea that you can do this without going to a branch, remember we started in the eighties where like you had to go to like the weird brokerage firm in your town and like go stand in line whatever, and now it's just like, ah, I can just use this whenever twenty four or feels like twenty four seven that was like a huge tectonic shift, and that was something I think that brought new users and new people, new entrants into the marketplace um and I think. The other thing that's interesting that kind of really took place is that crypto over time became kind of the prediction market for what would happen in stocks. So I feel like the boom of retail investing started in crypto and then kind of got copied by, you know, we saw the same trend of like mimetic investing over sort of like fundamentals based investing uh, kind of, seep through we also saw sort of um like disintermediation or like calls for disintermediation uh from crypto kind of starting to be seen in the equities market especially after the GameStop stuff and and you know people actually realizing that hey the back end of the financial system is actually still whatever stuff was made in the 90s like it it hasn't you know uh and then you know we sort of see this idea that like retail users want to buy exotic products like the uh, you know I think DeFi portended this thing where like options volume on Robinhood has never been you know it was like there was more retail volume in options than institutional volume for the first time ever this year um, mm. and this idea that financial access to even complicated products is made easier by a uh, sort of mobile phones. B um, everyone has computer with a ton of power around them all the time. Like, and they can be crunching numbers and doing kind of like basically doing all the financial modeling themselves without any infrastructure costs. And then C this idea that, uh, you can use financial products and apps almost as easily as it is to use Facebook or, or to use social media um, or Twitter, and I think that is really what portends to DeFi. Where once you have composability, it's like it's just like you know using apps on your phone, fo- like using integrating apps on your phone, and being able to like. Play with a much larger universe of of products. Um, so I think this the last phase has really been is really brought up by the the deinstitutionalization. First of all, that that's clear that that is the number one trend. Mm-hmm. But the second thing is that compute uh, has become so cheap and easy, and communication is so cheap and easy for everyone, not just for companies, not just for exchanges, not just for market makers that these markets can kind of scale to all humans and also at the same time be awake 24/7 and people can create and destroy products as as they need them which you know i think in in normal finance it's extremely slow to make a new financial product and it takes a lot of time to like get liquidity and like get people to understand what it is and defi and crypto really have made it so that the inventors, the products can be their own marketplace. They can be their own media. Go like, you know, go market on Twitter and TikTok, and then they can also just, uh, kind of like do this without any, with like relatively low capital costs.
0: True, and I, I, I'm interested when we, uh, when we talk about like the the first era and the second era, right? And um, we, we talked about these kind of companies and products that are sort of these uh, these bridge type products. And maybe Robinhood is, is one such um, bridge product, right? Um, but w- what strikes me is uh, the way era three is different than era one and era two is the previous electronic market eras existed within the existing financial system, right? Whereas era three is creating this uh, brand new, almost from the bottom up, financial system where all of the themes that we saw in the first and second era of like increasing liquidity, uh, enabling new assets, removing a layer of lawyers, stand, you know standardization of assets, ERC twenties, right, uh, lower barriers to entry. Um, all of these things seem to be like almost on steroids. In this, in this third era, in this new parallel financial system that we've invented. So it, it feels like Robin Hood is just this like bridge thing to get us to this weird bizarre new world, in this new financial system that we've built from the ground up, where it's like era one and era two, except amplified to to, you know, to the 10th degree. Um,
2: what's your take on that? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a that's a good way of thinking about it. it. It 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 has this like exploratory, playful nature, though that is that sort of feels like a little bit reminiscent of the early part of the '80s prior to the crash. You know, like people were just like making all sorts of crazy stuff, doing all sorts of sort of wild experimentation, um, and you know, I think that that sort of inevitable that we're going to run into some issues, right? We've already seen some issues with, with DeFi stuff, but I think the, the cool thing is the democratization of these assets basically means people will try to use them in weird ways that are not expected. Yes. And, uh, you know, that that's going to be kind of uh, both good and also bad, but we're going to get new data points from it. And I think the idea is like really about kind of like over time building risk. You know, I think one of the big things institutions have that retail users don't still don't really have. And then they do now for, for stocks and, and options I'd say, but not for DeFi is really tools about like understanding risk and stuff. And and that's because it feels like the 1980s and options where people didn't really know. And, we're, you know, it's like getting the math right is the hard part, right? And and we've kind of over time, we started with getting the math right, then adding technology, then getting the math right, then adding technology. And there's kind of this like back and forth. And usually the crashes punctuate the times when we transition between new technology causes new behavior versus like new math causes new behavior, new product. I When I say new math, I'm I'm also mixing New product because there's a sense in which if you're making a financial product, you do have to sort of define the math of like how the asset gets traded.
0: So, so and we've got this era of uh, experimentation, this new playground, as you said. Um, do you think that this might also precipitate, like as in the 1980s, all this experimentation precipitates some sort of crisis, and could that crisis even cause, you know, regulators? To step in and do some things, I'm wondering about the themes that we can learn from Era One and Era Two, so that we can project forward and see what we might anticipate uh, in this uh, in this crypto DeFi era.
2: Yeah, I think you know we we're certainly going to see uh, some sort, forms of crashes again. You know, we 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 already we already had cryptos had had a few. Uh, but the cool thing is they happen faster in crypto. But I think the second thing is that as we get into a world where there's a lot of DeFi protocols, there's a lot of DAOs, and uh, you know these protocols kind of like learn best standards and the things. People kind of figure out how how to model this stuff. Um, we will eventually have tools that people can use to measure this risk themselves in a manner that's understandable and interpretable um, when they're building new products. It's sort of like, if you could understand how to get composable risk models in the way of composable money Legos, then you could make it just as easy as, as using Robinhood.
1: True. I, I want to run this by you because I'm not sure if it's completely true or not, but I, I the. The story of this podcast is that you know history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. Phase Phase yep. One and Phase Two are similar, but not completely the same. Phase Two and Phase Three are similar, but not completely the same. But I, I think uh, I I can make the case that Phase Three is meaningfully different from Phase One and Phase Two in the sense that are the uh, I, you you talked about how backends are different now, and and you talked about how that's crypto, you know Ethereum and Bitcoin are these new settlement networks that are replacing the bottom of a financial system. Whereas phase two was an evolution on phase one, right? It was an evolution of financial markets as they currently existed into something new. Whereas phase three is something completely brand new. Now we're not reinventing finance. We're just in reinventing the substrate that it exists upon and so while these are the same themes of throughout history it is phase three is radically different from previous phases in the sense that the guts of the system are completely brand new is it would you agree with that
2: i think phase one also is like that yeah i i think phase one but yeah was phase also one like coming gutter. from
1: phase zero right like whatever yeah, coming from like phase-
2: pit traders like replacing right. that was that was also a similar tectonic shift okay. um
1: but and the overarching uh, another overarching through line is that phase 3 in and defi it's just way more accessible than what came before it and and you talked about how like you know we can easily spin up new financial instruments and you know market that on twitter and like i think we have seen also not
2: legal advice sorry sorry i should not,
1: i should yeah add. very much not legal advice never ever um, and i i think we can take a a, le- a lesson from andre cronier's book when he, you know, releases Yearn and it has this, like this accidental success that he didn't even intend to market. Right. Like, and he actually got frustrated at the level of success that it saw because of just the nature of the industry. And so we are now seeing a complete democratization of what it means to make a financial product uh, just because of the, the nature of this new substrate.
2: Yeah, for sure. And it's completely different. It's completely wild there are still lessons to be learned, uh, for sure. And I think a lot of the lessons boil down to like, how do you think about risk? At each new stage, there was a new mental model, a new mental framework that needed to be invented, new tools to, to kind of think about risk. Because like a lot of the point of different financial products, like new ones, is to do risk transference at some level. Mm transferring Mm -hmm. risk from some part of the market to another part of the market. And in DeFi land, it's even wilder because the risks are sort of when you have a composable network of apps, uh, you know, the, the figuring exactly kind of like how to hedge that under any different possible user behavior is, 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 is quite different than, oh, I'm just hedging the exposure to the stock price and it's like a static object in some sense.
1: There are a couple of themes that I want to revisit here. One of the themes is uh, the removal of lawyers out of the system. Can you talk about how you know, phase three has removed lawyers?
2: Yeah, so I mean, DeFi definitely has removed lawyers. So I, I view Uniswap liquidity shares and, 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 and all of the generalizations of them as basically ETFs where you don't need Barclays to be the manager, like the smart contract is the underwriter. And um, a lot for liquidity from the perspective of a liquidity provider, right? Cause the liquid liquidity provider is like, Hey, I want a 50, 50 portfolio and sure. You could use it to facilitate trades. Right. From there in, in sort of an abstract sense. Um, and I, I think there's like that, the, 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 there's sort of disintermediation both at the consumer level, like the retail user can go do it themselves and Mm. at the issuer level. Like, why do I need to go to BlackRock to issue the ETF? And I think that's kind of the crazy wild improvement that we've seen again, not without pitfalls. Like this, we're, if history rhymes, we're going to kind of learn that there are hidden risks, but you can only, you know, there's a combination of both modeling and, and thinking about things and also just, like, breaking things. And so right. you kind of need both lenses. And, and that the cool thing is this industry definitely feels like it's in this phase right now. I think for normal finance and stocks and stuff, I think people just are, yeah, it's, like, too regulated, like, to do anything creative in. Yeah.
1: Speak, speaking of the regulation, I think one of the, the big ways that these, this third wave has really broken away from the, the previous two is that not, not only have we reduced the need for lawyers, but like to some degree, if, we keep, if you keep your construction of whatever you're building inside of DeFi, inside of, inside of smart contracts, the, instead of needing lawyers, the EVM is the lawyer, right? The EVM is the law. And so, not only have we we broken away from lawyers, but we've also broken away from regulations, right? Because the the like I said, the EVM is the regulations, and and so I kind of think that like regulators are it's going to take them a lot longer for them to come to terms with phase three than it was for phase one and phase two, just because Ethereum does Ethereum doesn't use the U.S. legal system to settle, and so like if markets quote unquote break down, it's up to the EVM, not to the U.S. court system to make the markets clear. Uh, and so what, what's your opinion on the fact that, you know, we now have this new court system, which is the EVM rather than the US legal system and how regulators are going to approach this world of crypto uh, using lessons from phase one and two.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the initial regulator strategy was of course, block the on-ramps. Uh, so, so I will say regulators took a long time for electronic market like the early for phase one it, they they like didn't know it was happening it, it's it's like closer to this right now okay. mm-hmm. uh i think that they that they didn't have the tools they weren't really sure like because it was so easy to start a stock exchange and you didn't have any regulation on this national best bid and offer thing you shut down one like someone else will come up like it wasn't yeah. as structured as it is in crypto where it's like built around that being the modality, but that was what was happening in the like Mm -hmm. late eighties, early nineties for sure. Um, but I would say, yeah, it's going to be hard for them to grapple with. Um, but I think that's the beauty of, of kind of being in this space right now is that, you know, for now I think it will be kind of, uh, you can actually try out all of these new things Mm -hmm. um, without, you know, with some level of impunity. Uh, I think in the long run, governance will somehow end up being part of, like regulators will somehow try to like, you know, like the block the fiat on ramps will be block the governance on ramp (laughs) type -hmm. of thing. Mm -hmm. Like I think that's the route they would go. Yeah.
1: For, with the themes that we've been following so far in, in the show, how would you um, uh, account for just the fact that there's a, a massive number of centralized exchanges that have cropped up, right? Um, you know, in, in 10, 20 years, we haven't really seen exchanges outside of the New York Stock Exchange or the NASDAQ. But as soon as crypto shows up, you got Coinbase, Kraken, Gemini, Binance, you know, OKX, you know, Bitthumb. Uh, and that's not even to talk about the decentralized exchanges that exist on Ethereum. Why? Why is why was that enabled? Like, what what part of this this story enabled so many exchanges to just crop up?
2: Yeah, I mean, it, it it's a little bit like the early '90s when in stock exchanges anyone could just go start a stock exchange randomly, right? And the difference is, uh, if you remember, in Phase Two we had this this regulation that completely killed. Um, a lot of the stock exchanges enforce consolidation in crypto. It's much harder because a your fiat the exchange centralized exchanges are the fiat on ramps for most people right. and they need to have local banks. And I think it's just way harder because it's like a global phenomenon to like imagine a world where there's just like one centralized exchange. Um, I think the other thing is just, uh, there's so many assets and so many like different like standards at different exchanges for like which assets they have, how much liquidity they have. And it's actually really hard to do a lot of the arbitrage. Like people like, oh, there's so much easy arbitrage between like the Thailand Bitcoin exchange and the U S one. Well, the problem is you need a ton of Thai bot and a Thai bank account to get money into that exchange. Right? Like, so there's all sorts of weird, like pseudo regulatory reasons for like the, the kind of like explosion in centralized exchanges, I think. Um, but yeah, I think the fiat on on ramp thing is certainly the the main thing governments know how to do, and that's like the only thing they'll probably continue to do.
0: Uh, so, Turin, you, you've mentioned a few times as we've been talking about um, you know phase three that uh, each of these other phases have presented new risks, and um, you know DeFi in this crypto phase presents new risks as well. I'm curious from your vantage point, and like you've got. Yeah, I mean, you're working on this with Gauntlet. Uh, you're an investor in the space, all sorts of things. Um, you, you know, MEV in and out. What are the big risks that you see on the horizon for DeFi and crypto at this point?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think we we composability is a, is a, a two-sided sword as well. You know, there's the boons. It's it's much more capital efficient in, in some sense. Uh, but obviously, the risks are that you could compound your risk uh, as you move through different protocols. Um, but I think one of the bigger risks over time is is going to be more from uh, like users not understanding what they're buying, uh, and I, <laughs> I think that's like that's like in general kind of fine. Uh, I think it's much harder when people are are you know, taking a ton of leverage and they don't understand when their leverage might, like when they get liquidated or when, when something like an adverse event happens. And I think a lot of reducing that is figuring out how to convey in simple terms, sort of likelihoods and probabilities of risk to users in a way that they can understand and in a way that they can say like, when I do action X, this is what, how much it will change my risk. Now, a little bit like options uh, in the 80s, like, you know, the math isn't there yet. The way of reasoning about things isn't totally there. But I mean, that that's sort of what we, we work on at Gauntlet. But it, it, it's, it's like there's still this sense in which there's a lot of like fly-by-night uh, kind of uh, behavior. And I think if we don't have good risk, we're not going to risk, models, risk assessments, risk kind of understanding, we're not going to actually be able to get to this kind of dream of like closer to under loans and closer to being more capital efficient than um, centralized exchanges, because capital efficiency comes at a cost of security. Like how much capital you put comes at cost of like, oh, how easy is it to take advantage of the system and being able to walk that tightrope, um, carefully is going to be the key to success of DeFi. Kind of take over from my. Brain. Yeah,
0: I will say just from like a practical perspective, it is really hard to understand the risks. Like I, so you take something like um, you know, a die versus c die, right? So like die wrapped in compound versus DAI wrapped in Ave. I like I have no way to tell the you know like the risk difference between the the those two assets, and if one is riskier than the other. Um, it's very difficult. Is is this the sort of transparency you're talking about and what do you do at gauntlet to, to help with this? Because it seems like a lot of these things are hidden and, um, like the risk is really difficult
2: to quantify. So how do you start to quantify the risk of these types of things? Yeah, I think, yeah. So something, something, the difference between a die and C die that is not static. It's not like I can tell you yeah, right. forever at all times that the DAI is safer than CDAI or CDAI is safer than DAI. It's always changing based on the user behavior in these systems. So mm-hmm. it's dependent on the types of loans that there are outstanding. It's dependent on the types of liquidity providers, how often they're adding and removing liquidity. It's dependent on the liquidators, like can liquidators, are there enough liquidators, do they have enough DAI? Um, and so this complex mesh here is different than normal finance in another cool way, which is you have, you have multiple agents and participants who each have to sort of, if if they're rational and the market conditions make sense, each of them working as expected somehow keeps the system safe. But if any one of them is sort of removed, the system can collapse. And that's just the nature of decentralized version of this versus sort of like a bank. If a bank collapses, well, government bails out, or you know, like the legal system somehow resolves that, right? (laughs) That's not going to happen here, right? So the key here is to make sure there's sufficient incentives for all of the participants, and that all the participants can earn a profit given their sort of utility, their measure of happiness uh, in these systems. And so, you know, what what Gauntlet Uh, you know, how we started and kind of how we got to where, where we are now is when I was working in high frequency trading, a lot of the ways that we were, we would optimize and measure risk in our trading strategies that we'd put in production is we would take our strategy and we would take what we thought other people's strategies are in the market. And we would run a simulation where they sort of played a game against each other. And we'd run millions of different universes of the same simulation and say, like, hey, what percentage of the time does our strategy win? And which strategies does it win against? Crypto markets are kind of similar. There's, in in the case of a lender, there is a borrower, there's a lender, and there's the liquidators. The liquidators are keepers. And they each have different incentives. The liquidators have very low time preference, and they just want to optimize profit instantly. The borrowers just want to pay the lowest rate, and the lenders just want to earn the most yield. And they all, even though those three are sometimes opposing, you can find these equilibria where they're very stable. But you need to be able to say, hey, what do I think this user does? What do I think this other user does? And what do I think this other user does based on the data that you've seen historically and also things that you haven't seen but could be kind of irrational, crazy behavior from them. And crypto systems. Are also analyzed this way. When we analyze consensus protocols or we analyze zero-knowledge proofs, we try to model a world where we assume that the these adversaries, adversaries or users can be Byzantine and maybe not rational, and maybe sort of doing something erratic. And so what we do is we model all the users in the system, and then run simulations of them kind of competing, using historical data, and then say what percentage of the time does this particular type of adverse event, like a liquidation, happen, and so it's slightly different than the way people quantify things in, you know, the way people think about risk models in, uh, sort of like an insurance company or uh, sort of like more like an asset manager. But it's much closer to how people in high frequency trading and sort of AI in a lot of ways think about modeling risk, because here the transparency actually means you can model it in a, a way closer to hft or ai and so you know from doing that you can start to to say things like hey if the parameter the interest rate curve in the system was slightly different then this event happens 50% less and so that that's sort of the outputs of, of kind of this type of modeling if that makes sense
1: true and i want to present I want to put on my like blind bull hat and, and I want then I want you to see, uh, see if I'm being naive or, or smart or not. And uh, a, a lot of the, with these phases, phase one, phase two, there was some sort of like market event, market crisis that uh, perhaps ended the phase and then moved on to the new one. Also, regulators came in and started acting because of the crisis and started to, you know, shake things up a little bit. Uh, and and I, want, I want to see if that, you know, I want to know if that's going to come true for, for DeFi and crypto, right? So far, this industry has been relatively blessed to be protected from some heavy handed regulation. And there's definitely been conversations and some, some light regulation coming. But overall, as an industry, we haven't really been too regulated. We also really haven't had too much of a financial crisis because this a this industry isn't big enough to really have a financial crisis. Uh, but b like we go through booms and busts, and we have our market events that are negative, but they just don't really impact the greater globe. You know we. The crypto has gone through like m- multiple major drawdowns of 90% in asset prices, and it survived that. The markets survived that. DeFi was born in 2017, 2018, and then we we saw Ether lose 95% of its value. DeFi kept on going, worked just fine. Then we had Black Thursday, uh, with uh, with COVID or Black Tuesday or whatever it was, uh, where you know uh, asset prices got cut by 60% in under a day. So we've ha- had both like. Long-term drawdowns with asset prices that caused liquidations and things were fine. And then we had extremely fast volatility drawdowns in very short amount of, amounts of time. Things kind of got broke up a little bit, but ultimately markets cleared. The Ethereum blockchain kept on going. Nothing really bad happened. And what you are talking about with this financial modeling that's going on that you guys do at Gauntlet to talk about, you know, risk parameterization for Aave and Compound, we are able to do that. By the very nature of what DeFi is, we have the data to do that and we can make more informed simulations to make more informed economic platforms. And so my bull case for DeFi and Ethereum and, and this, this industry at large is that we have so much data permissionlessly available to everyone and we have this new financial substrate, which is you know, Ethereum and the EVM that will continue to clear markets no matter what, as they have done, that perhaps we never actually have our big financial crisis moment that previous phases have had that have brought in the regulators. And so perhaps the EVM and the Ethereum blockchain just keep on chugging. People like you and and, and uh, companies like Gauntlet keep on doing great financial modeling because of the richness of data that we have. And we are actually protected from any sort of massive financial crisis by the very nature of the industry. Industry, am I being naive here?
2: Well, you could argue that BSC was a financial crisis (laughs) in some ways, just in the sense of like, in the sense of like all of the kind of like rug pulling and like. I think Ah. that the the key thing to a financial crisis is there's a lot of naive or uneducated participants who lose a lot of money and right now the thing is if we're being real everyone in this space is like a little bit like you know paying They're there's their risk tolerance is certainly not low right it's not like <laughs> no, it's you know like the sec only <laughs> really goes after people when like grandma loses her her mm. pension money right and like that's the that's kind of the type of thing i think that would be more like institutions losing money like some let's say like some college endowment like puts money into iron finance and loses <laughs> because <laughs> mark cuban told them to i don't know <laughs> like like that's the type of stuff i think that like people would call a crisis a, a sort of crisis in some ways is like when moms and pops sure. you know lose lose money who are not kind of like risk seeking to some extent Mm -hmm. and I'm not trying to say I'm not trying to call everyone on this call super risk seeking but I'm just uh saying compared to like the the people who like yeah like pension funds kind Mm -hmm. of that's kind of when people start getting a little antsy
1: okay well my, my question still stands though so like there is there a fundamental difference in these phase three of electronic markets that protects us from systemic risk that we've seen happen in previous markets
2: yeah, transparency. So one one really cool uh, thing I think that is uh, that exists in crypto is that we've already we have like tons of CDOs, of mortgage-backed securities, and DeFi. They're just under different names. Mm-hmm. Like you could you could view Maker as MKR as sort of like security mm-hmm. for a CDO. Um, sure. You could view staking derivatives like Lido, which basically as sort of something like, uh, a little bit like a mortgage-backed security backed by your stake that's locked up. And the cool thing about them, and this is the difference between 2008 and DeFi, is not necessarily just that, uh, that you know, hey, it's electronic, the data is, is, is super transparent. It's also that the information is propagated through all the entities using things because of composability. So in the mortgage crisis, well, ha- here's kind of how things would happen. You would go get a mortgage. Your mortgage issuer would then go securitize it. The securitizer would make shares, like they make a company that bought your mortgage. That company would have shares. Those shares would get sold. Now, let's say you default on your house. So the company owns a bunch of mortgages that owns the securities. The default process takes like, Three to six months, I mean, very locality to locality sensitive, right? Like, oh, like, you know, maybe certain places like you can't foreclose on so- on a house in one month, and other places you can foreclose instantly. And there's a whole legal procedure. And there's also all these middlemen. There's the person who made the company that's securitizing, there's the mortgage issuer, there's like this whole like cruft of that industry, which is mainly due to regulatory capture, to be honest. Um, and so... The security has a price, last traded price, but the information of like which houses are foreclosed, what's the true value of like the mortgages inside this black box, that's the company, has, it could take six months to reach the security. Like the securities holders will only learn about it six months later. And they'll, be, they'll only learn about it via some weird disclosure form that's regulatorily required, not because like the issuer wants to tell them. In DeFi, you're issuing these crazy securities, but the information is priced basically instantly, like within a couple blocks, right? Mm -hmm. Like something happens, smart contract executes all of the price change. There's a decision tree of like, hey, how should we mark all the different components? And like, here's the new price of the security. That fact that the information in a complicated financial product can be propagated through it and executed atomically and sort of instantly, basically instantly, is a hallmark of how this is much more different than kind of what we saw in 2008 and why all the lawyers were necessary there. Because the lawyers were the ones who were like propagating the information between the different right. entities, right? right? And ensuring that order these transactions- routing.
0: Lawyers were, were order
2: outing. Lawyers were order routing. And the lawyers, in case anyone listening doesn't know, take much higher fees than like <laughs> <laughs> Robin <Hood. laughs> Uh, so, yeah, you could basically think of it that way. And so, I view the lawyers in that whole industry as like like the open pit, you know, to get back to phase right. one, like the open mm-hmm. outcry people. They're the ones who are like doing the hand signals and shit. And they got replaced. And this mm-hmm. feels a lot like, like DeFi really feels like it's these complicated financial products that were gate kept are now kind of being unleashed.
0: So, Tarun, this has been uh, an incredible. I guess, walk through the three phases of electronic uh, markets here. And, and I'm wondering if you could just like leave us with a few final thoughts for um, th- this phase three era. It, it feels like we're maybe still in the front half of phase three, but, but I'm not sure. Like, yeah. so h- how do you see this playing out and how can we prepare ourselves uh, for, for the rest of uh, phase three?
2: Yeah, I think the the sort of main things uh, to think about are, you know, one, what primitives will be invented that might be even further out on the risk scale that get lots of capital in? Because I think those are the places where you're most likely to have kind of these kind of potential crashes like super highly leveraged things that like, you know, get stuck in, in, in certain ways. Like there's no liquidation mechanism. There's no way for things to, to exit correctly. Um, but on the more positive side, um, being able to actually see like CFI entities become front ends for DeFi because they just don't think their, their businesses are regulatorily not viable. Uh, and so it's just easier to be a DeFi front end than to, to actually be a centralized exchange. I I, I think that that is the sign of like the transition Mm -hmm. into the new phase. We have a word for this.
0: Yes. Uh, we have a phrase, we call this the DeFi mullet, taroon, which is like, (laughs) uh, FinTech in the front, DeFi in the back, you know? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's really cool to see that with, uh, with the exchanges and crypto banks, uh, moving forward, uh. Man, It's been great to have you. You are a wealth of knowledge, sir. Thanks so much for joining us on Bankless. Thank you for having me. Action items, guys. We have uh, some books to read. Tarun was kind enough to leave a book reading list with uh, some of the themes from the episode. We will include that in the show notes. One is called Inside Job, Looting America's Savings, More Money Than God, When Genius Failed, a few of the books there. So make sure you check those out. David, we could also use some more five-star reviews, I think, because you know how I know that is because we could always use more five-star reviews. If you're on YouTube, by the way, like, and subscribe. But if you are listening to this on the Apple podcast, what should people do, David? They should absolutely go and give
1: us those five-star reviews to get the <laughs> Bankless podcast up to the front of the markets and investing podcast, business markets, investing Uh Uh, The wave three is upon us and more people need to hear about it. And they are hearing about it on the Bankless podcast. So go ahead and give us those five
0: star reviews. Absolutely, guys. Of course, risks and disclaimers. None of what we said was financial advice. Not even a bit. ETH is risky. Bitcoin is risky. Crypto is risky. So is DeFi. We talked about some of the risks near the end. The Key thing is you could lose what you put in, but we are headed west. This is the frontier. It's not for everyone, but we're glad you're with us on the Bankless journey. Thanks a lot.
1: Hey, we hope you enjoyed the video. If you did, head over to Bankless HQ right now to develop your crypto investing skills and learn how to free yourself from banks and gain your financial independence. We recommend joining our daily newsletter, podcast and community as a Bankless Premium Subscriber to get the most out of your Bankless experience. You'll get access to our market analysis, our alpha leaks, and exclusive content, and even the Bankless token for airdrops, raffles, and unlocks. If you're interested in crypto, the Bankless community is where you want to be. Click the link in the description to become a Bankless Premium subscriber today. Also, don't forget to subscribe to the channel for in-depth interviews with industry leaders, Ask Me anything, and weekly roll-ups where we summarize the week in crypto and other fantastic content. Thanks everyone for watching and being on the journey as we build out the Bankless Nation.